Hello everyone and welcome back to the fourth episode of the What the Family Studies podcast by Offshia. I am your co-host Laura Hattier and today I'll be talking to Heather Bamford, a family studies teacher at John Fraser Secondary School who has been teaching in the Peel Board for 19 years. Heather is also in the role of cross-curricular head of assessment and culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy, a perfect position for someone who describes themselves as an assessment geek. And I'm your other co-host, Catherine Murphy. Heather's also been the lead teacher of family studies since 2010, is the chair of the Peel Family Studies Association, and is a passionate advocate for our discipline. Heather's taught most of our family studies courses at some point in her career, but is truly passionate about teaching fashion, families in Canada, and the introductory family studies course. Outside of the classroom, Heather is a mom of a 14-year-old future inventor who personifies inquiry learning, and she can often be found reading or sewing in her spare time. Before we begin speaking with Heather, let's go over our learning goals for today's episode. First, we'll get to know Heather and her passion for assessment. Then, we'll understand how Heather's assessment strategies have evolved over her career. And finally, we'll learn about the importance of authentic and meaningful assessment. Welcome, Heather. I'm so happy that you're here today. I just started my first LTO, and assessment is something that I have a lot of questions about. So I would love if you could describe yourself. You called yourself an assessment geek. If you could explain what that means to you and tell us a bit about the path that maybe led you to being an assessment geek. Okay, so... You know, some people are like Trekkies and some people are really into sports. I'm really into assessment. I spend a lot of time thinking about assessment and learning about assessment and talking to other people about assessment and engaging in professional learning about assessment and presenting about assessment. I just really enjoy thinking about new ways and constantly working to improve what I'm doing. I really feel that assessment is at the heart of what our practice should be and it needs to be equitable and transparent for students. So you asked how I got here. So when I started teaching almost 20 years ago now, my assessment practices was just a standard assessment practice. It looked an awful lot like the one that I would have been exposed to as a student in school and through university. Uh, you know, grades were sort of this currency and I took in everything and I marked everything because otherwise students wouldn't do the work. I felt that it was really necessary for the integrity, I hate that word now, but the integrity of of the course and the credit. And then I would take all these grades that I I had collected and I'd throw it into a marks program and it would spit out a grade, right? And, And that would be that. And somewhere along the lines, I had an aha moment. I had a student who generally earned level fours, and but they hit a rough patch. I, I believe they had a death in the family. And there was a period of time where they earned a few level twos. And at the end of the semester, when the marks program that I trusted spit out a mark, it was in the 70s. But this student had never earned a level three at all in the course. So how could this be representative of their achievement? So this, this was my aha moment that sort of made me think, you know what? there's got to be a better way of doing this. And that's what started my journey and how I became an assessment geek. And it's constantly going and constantly evolving since then. I feel like you've just described me like in my first LTO, that's exactly what I'm doing is I feel like I have to mark everything or else they won't do the work. That is literally me right now. So I'm so happy that I'm learning this at the beginning of my career. So you've been teaching for 20 years and you've figured this out over time. What would you say is the biggest change to your practice with respect to student assessment over time? Like what's the biggest thing you've changed? Well, first of all, I I don't know if I'd say I figured it out. It's still evolving. What's the biggest change? The biggest change is it's more holistic, that I'm far more targeted in what I'm doing. I spent a significant amount of time mapping my curriculum and discovering themes and developing overarching learning goals, which I, it's a very 
peel thing and i'm not sure if other places some people call them big ideas or some boards call them big ideas i've heard them referred to as the old enduring understandings but i have about four to five for each course and these are rooted in the overall expectations of the curriculum and these are something that i assess and evaluate continuously throughout the course from the beginning to the end so learning is no longer scores that are averaged it, it's a continuum so i'm looking at how students grow and change and progress over the course of the semester as opposed to everything becoming high stakes i actually don't use grades in most of my courses so from grades nine through 11, and even grade 12 fashion, I'm completely gradeless until a midterm and final evaluation. And then in my four U's, and I also teach some advanced placement courses, I'm using very, very targeted evaluations. And I only mark in whole levels. I don't use any of this minus or plus stuff. It's just the level. And that's usually one formal evaluation per unit. And everything else is assessment data that is collected informally and formally through conversations, observations, some product with a greater emphasis on assessment as learning and very, very limited assessment of learning. Okay, so then if you're not marking them throughout the year, how do you come up with a mark at reporting periods. I'm very confused. <laughs> it is it is confusing and this might be part two or three. I use, so I, I mentioned these overarching learning goals. I actually create something called a learning map and there's a fabulous book that got me started on this by, uh, actually I can't remember who it's by, but it's called Beyond Letter Grades and the incredible Kristen Clark, who used to be the assessment coordinator for the Peel District School Board, was the person who helped me in this journey. So a learning map, it looks like a rubric, but it's not a rubric. It's what each of these big ideas or overarching learning goals explicitly look like at each level of achievement, right? So it's a learning progression. So I've then created learning goals that feed into these overarching learning goals, which have clear success criteria, and I'm tracking student achievement. So it's standards-based student achievement of those learning goals. And then I use that to plot where they are on the learning map. But I don't do this all by myself. I do this in conjunction with the student. So the students are very clear about where they are in their learning and what they need to do to move themselves forward, which puts the onus on them. Okay, so very student-centered. I like to hear it. <laughs> I have heard of learning goals. I mean, that I learned that in teacher's college, but I was hired the day before and I had never taught HLS before, so I had not had time to map out an entire curriculum. I've been using curriculum maps that have been developed by other people, but you have to adjust things for how it works for you. So I've been just kind of working on the fly for right now. And as a new teacher, there was no way I ever would have been ready for this. When you look at the, the first year or two of teaching, it's survival, right? You're going from one day to the next, so you're doing the best you can. I didn't start this until probably year seven. That makes me feel better. <laughs> so how do you use assessment in your classroom then to support student learning and wellness? Do you feel like it, it plays into their wellness? It's interesting. So I'm the cross-curricular head of assessment and CRRP. And my school is a very academic school, like ridiculously academic. And our leadership team has actually identified the culture of grades having a massive negative impact on our students' mental health. And we are moving towards a gradeless feedback-focused model in our D-Stream courses as a result, because it is so negatively impacting our students. And there's actually research that shows that it has a similar impact on students' brains as an eating disorder. So if a student was focused on the number on a scale or the size of their clothes, we'd be like, oh my goodness, we have to get you help, right? You need support. Here's all 
these resources. But when a student is obsessed with their grades, that's normalized. Right. Right. But it has such a profound negative impact. And we know that there's a lot of students that know how to play the game of school. They know how to read the assignment because a lot of assignments are checklists. If I do this, this and this, I'll get the grade that I want. So they focus on earning the marks rather than the learning. And that really decreases their interest in what they're learning. It also heavily emphasizes compliance. Those that do well are those that are considered high achievers are ones that have a tendency to comply with what we ask of them. We also see students that will have a tendency then to avoid classes they think are too hard or they won't do well in or teachers that are too tough. They'll seek out the easiest possible path. And we're really seeing that. I don't know if this is the trend in other boards, but in my board, we have a lot of students seeking out credit mills and private schools and buying their grade 12 credits because they have to get a certain grade to get into a program. So this also encourages this. It encourages cheating behavior because the kids are so focused on that mark, they're willing to take that risk. None of this is good. Right. And then they'd also want to say what you want to hear, which is not necessarily always going to give them the most for critical thinking skills. Like they should be able to, I don't know, have an open dialogue and not just saying what the teacher wants to hear because the teacher's not always right. Yeah, you're right, though. They're very reluctant to take any academic risks right. because of the impact it will have. One bad grade and the impact it can have on them, right, and their achievement. And we see students, I have I have a particular student in mind. She's, she's a gifted underachiever, so school has always come easy to her. She's always scored high 90s on everything without a lot of effort. And then last year, she's in our advanced placement program. She had three AP sciences in a grade 12 course, and she was crashing and burning, and she didn't know how to deal with this. And it really messed with her sense of self and how what she believed about herself. Mm-hmm. So it's the person leaving the charge, because it wasn't me saying we need to shift to this feedback-focused model. It was our head of math, which is not generally a subject where you're like, yeah, we're going to go gradeless. They like their numbers. Yeah. <laughs> She's been one of our biggest champions in this as well. So it's it's been really interesting. It all makes sense. Well, when I was in university, I was so obsessed with my grades because I really wanted a scholarship. And if you got a certain average, you would get this scholarship. And so that was my motivation to get through school. That was always my motivation. My motivation was never to actually learn the content. It was always to achieve a certain grade. And yeah, it really did stress me out. And then when I went to Western for teacher's college, we were pass or fail. So it was completely different. It makes sense, but we're not doing this everywhere. So what challenges have you faced when changing your practice? I'm sure a lot of people are reluctant to change the way that things have always been, right? Um, I think for me, because I've been doing this for so long, because I had that aha moment, I was in year seven of my teaching practice, is that I was very much alone doing this. Like I didn't know anybody else that was having these thoughts or thinking about these things. So I was building systems as I went. Like it was super easy to use the, it was Mark book at the time where you plugged it in and the school board provided it, but there wasn't anything in place to do that. So a lot of it was trial and error. It was figuring things out. It was a lot of work at times because I was overdoing things and trying to keep track of stuff. And then the whole knowledge, thinking, understanding, communication, trying to keep those bins separate. And then I met, I I already mentioned Kristen Clark, who's amazing. She's now a vice principal at Bishop Strawn Private School. She's a bigger assessment geek than I am. She's like my mentor assessment geek, but she was the assessment coordinator for the Peel District School Board. And just meeting her and having these conversations, like she knows growing success inside out and backwards and upside down and probably better than the people who wrote it. But we don't have to be tied to those ideas anymore, that we can do it holistic, that we can have these really rich assessments and evaluations that have the elements 
elements of those knowledge, thinking, understanding, application, but we don't have to separate them. So that was like freedom for me, getting rid of those bins. And that really helped me rethink things about how we're doing is that it's this holistic approach. Really understanding assessment policy was a big one too, because I don't think anybody ever sat me down and talked to me about assessment policy, like even in teacher's college, right? You just mark stuff, but what does that, what am I marking? Why am I marking this? So understanding that everything that I was evaluating, I needed to have a clear goal of what this was and why I was doing this and how it connected to the curriculum and understanding that we only have to formally evaluate the overall expectation, not the specific, right? right? We get so bogged down in it. I've heard both. I've been told you have to do every single expectation and then I've been told you only have to do the overalls and I've never had a concrete answer. It's in growing success. You only have to do the overalls. You're specific expectations should be covered as part of teaching and learning and you decide as the educator or even better yet let your students decide how they're going to use those specific ideas to show their understanding of the overall expectations that you formally evaluate as teachers we practically kill ourselves with the sheer volume of stuff we take in and it's so unnecessary there's so much we can do informally right? Because right. growing success talks you, it talks about using conversations and observations to collect assessment data. It doesn't have to be stuff we take in all the time. Like I have times where I'm Google Classroom, I put up a discussion question to check for understanding. I give them feedback based on emojis. If they got it, they get a star. If they didn't get it, they'll get a comment inviting them to expand on their ideas. And then I'll go back over it with them. So it's super fast and easy. I think where I struggle is with conversations and observations because it's so new trying to understand how to I guess document it in a way where you can kind of prove because it it is like a subjective opinion and so it's hard to prove that that is the grade that they deserve or if you put a mark for conversation observation and then a parent pushes back and they're like well how how did you come up with this and it's it's like well I just listened to them in class but you have no documentation of it Okay, so that's where the framework comes in. (laughs) This is where the map of your curriculum would come in, right? So I have my my overall overarching learning goals with the learning goals that feed into them that all have clear success criteria. That's what I'm documenting, right? Is that success or the standards based on that success criteria? I wouldn't ever say I give a grade for a conversation. This is holistic, right? It informs my understanding of how they're achieving the learning goals. So I use a lot of technology tools because I'm comfortable with them. So for example, most of what I teach these days is fashion, which lends itself to observations. So we're just getting ready to start on the machine. So next week, once we do the here's actually how the machine works and so on the line and thread it, my students and I will co-construct look force based on where they are in their learning. And then I have a Google form, I walk around with an iPad and I, as I observe things, I check it off beside their name, which gives a spreadsheet, a running record of their progression. It'll change over the course of the semester. So at the beginning, I may be looking for, you know, they're remembering to wear their super sexy safety glasses and they know how to thread the machine properly. And we're past that now. So that's going to get dropped off and be replaced with something else, right? Right. So it's a constant progression over the course of the semester. So those look-fors are co-constructed with the students, but they also tie back to the curriculum expectations. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. And how have your students responded to the way that you assess them in the classroom? It's been interesting. Those who've had me since grade nine or from the early grades, they just go with it, right? Because they don't know any different. 
But those I, I meet for the first time in say grade 12, it, it's a bit of a conversation. So I actually do this on the first day. I talk about the idea of a continuum and I talk about giving them the opportunity to have multiple chances to show what they know related to the same learning goal, right? So it's not a, a one and done type thing. It's not a high stakes test. And that's the only thing I'm doing. I, I don't generally do a lot of tests, but if I did, so say you're in my family's in Canada class and in class, you know, when we're having discussions and we're doing activities and, and, you know, we do a little check for understanding and an exit ticket. And there, there may have been a group activity we did about theoretical perspectives. You're just nailing them. You are teaching other people. But then on the test, you oops, something went wrong. Your wires crossed that day. You mixed up two of them. That's not my only piece of evidence. Right. So as soon as students realize that's not your only piece of evidence, that there's all this other evidence, it changes the way they view it. Oh, I get to mess up and I get another chance. So HHS, I'm going to use that one as an example because I've taught that course now 27 times and it's probably, as far as assessment and evaluation goes, my most developed. So I have four overarching learning goals that are rooted in the curriculum and I have developed a learning map and this is the only assessment tool I use for the entire course. So everything they do relates back to these four OLGs and I tell them which one we're looking at. So this discussion question will relate to this OLG on theoretical perspectives. So because it's the same tool for every single thing they do it really is a continuum so in unit one maybe they weren't quite there yet but then in unit two you know you can really see them developing their skills related to using like demographic data and evidence to support what they're thinking and understanding how social institutions change and grow and by the final unit of the course it was really apparent the last time i taught it which was completely online I had students in that course, they had the highest achievement I've ever had in that course that I felt the best about because they'd had such an amazing opportunity to grow their skills. And I tracked how they improved rather than averaging out unit one, unit two, unit three, unit four. And so by the, by the final unit, it was just natural for them to be bringing in demographic data from StatsCan to support what they're talking about, about current Canadian families and wondering about future trends and what the future holds and thinking about who's excluded from our discussion about parents and children, because they had built that over the course of the entire semester. And it was powerful. Yeah, because you don't want to just assess them once. That's not really showing their growth. That's just showing a one-time assessment. How have you explained this to parents then? Or how have parents even responded to you? Do they understand this method? Or do you send out an email? No, I, I've never sent out. A, I've never sent out an email. I've never actually had a parent push back against this. Because usually when you when they call or you have a conversation with them, because I've collected all this data, I have where their children are in terms of all of these standards. I'm able to confidently say, you know, they're really grasping this part of the course. And this is amazing. I've been able to see them grow. This is what I see where they need to go next. And the parents are just in awe that I have this much information. Right. So like I have a specific student of mine. She was a fashion student of mine. She would be what I would call a striving learner. So she's somebody who had a spec ed profile. She'd struggled in school her mom couldn't come to parents night. So we were exchanging emails back and forth. And I just gave this like beautiful breakdown about her, her daughter, about her skills in terms of leadership, in terms of the sewing component that she'd really grasped the hands on part. And she was helping other people that she was doing well, that she had, she had really strong verbal memory, but she had trouble breaking down the um, instructions. 
here's where she needed to improve in terms of the academic component of the course. The mom's like, I've never received this before. Yeah. Like I've never had this kind of detail before. So you just kind of wow them, I guess. I could see that because it seems like you have such a authentic and holistic picture of their child. Mm -hmm. I think we don't want to get too, too in depth because we are going to do a second part. So I guess I'll switch over to Kathy and she'll give you some rapid fire questions. No pressure. No, no pressure. pressure. All right, Heather, this is the fun part of the podcast, and we like to do our rapid-fire questions. So I'm just going to ask you some really quick questions, about five of them. You just give us the first answer that comes to the top of your head, okay? All right. All right, first question. Your to-do list, is it digital or handwritten? Mental. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay, that's, that's amazing. That's fantastic. That's okay, though. At least, you know, it's written down in your brain. So that's, yeah. that's half the battle, I think. Okay. Um, okay. Second question: Coffee or tea? Diet Coke. Oh, okay. So neither. All right. If I had to pick one, I'd pick tea. Thanks. All right. Number three: Do you prefer Google Classroom or Brightspace? Google Classroom. Best recipe that you've ever made in a foods class? Oh. Okay. So I had a very creative grade twelve class that did crepes and used all the extra ingredients because they were the last group. So they had like caramelized bananas. They had turned a pot into a double boiler and made chocolate sauce. And it was just like decadent. It was just absolutely decadent. And one of them went on to be a chef. So, Oh, that's amazing. It's great when you get those classes, isn't it? That just kind of take their own life and, and move on like that. That's They do. All right. Our last rapid fire question. Your favorite sewing projects with students. Favorites. Oh, favorite. I'm going to go <laughs> with the burrito pillowcase I do with my grade 10s because the sheer joy they experience when they achieve success and there's such a high degree of success. So that, that's, that's, that's going to be my favorite. Yes, because they, they just can't believe they made it. That's fantastic. Heather, we want to thank you very much for joining us on our podcast. And we look forward to our second half with you where we're going to get a little bit more in depth and find out exactly what you're doing in the classroom with assessment. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of What the Family Studies. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Heather about assessment in the area of family studies. Remember to subscribe to be notified when we release new episodes. What the Family Studies is brought to you by the Ontario Family Studies and Home Economics Educators Association. Special thanks to our producer, Michelin Gallant, tech support and podcast editor, Cassandra McEachern, and our co-hosts, Catherine Murphy and Laura Hattier.